So I'll just give a quick introduction for those that don't know you. You are the, is it a, the co-founder and the CEO? So you're the co-founder of AI Seed, which has over 45 investments um, yep. out there. And then you are the CEO of Capital Enterprise, which has a whopping 576 investments in different companies and you tend to stay in the machine learning and technological space when you invest um so definitely when then we invest personally yeah i mean give you context of the companies that we basically have invested in it's actually the vast majority of those are through the accelerators that we've co-funded so it's actually the accelerators the entrepreneur first the tech stars the c camps etc but I mean, so we're one step uh, kind of removed. Okay. Okay, great. Now, can you just walk us through a bit about how you came to be where you are? Because I know, so you have these two that I just mentioned, but you also have other um, companies that you're, you're advising, you're also actively raising funds for, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm, um, to give you kind of um, some background, I, I, I fell into this side of the market in around about 2010 hmm. because previously I was on the other side. I was an entrepreneur okay. and I had an entrepreneur experience about 11, 12 years. And my arc was the wrong arc. I, my first business was an SQL database business. We did reasonably well. I then did another business that ended up becoming consultancy. And then I did a hardware business, which I lost a fortune on. So my arc wasn't, <laughs> kind of where you're supposed to be is that you start off, you fail and you get better and better. And as you well know, in the fifth act, it all comes right. Yeah. <laughs> I had the slightly different arc. And so in 2010, I basically was effectively at least, uh, relatively broke. Mm. And therefore I was looking for an opportunity and, and there was this mor uh, moribund organization about probably that's a wrong phrase. It was a effectively semi-dormant organization called Capital Enterprise. Mm. And I was asked to um, at the end of 2009, in 2010, would I come and work for it, uh, take it over? They could pay me one to two days a week, and could you do something with it? And at the time, I had a failing startup, and um, I felt that would fit in because I was still hoping to turn that around. Mm. In 2011, I eventually finished. I left that startup, and it uh, basically, but it's no longer operating as it was, and um, basically. And then in 2011-12, I started to make work almost full-time in Capital Enterprise to build it out. And I then became an angel investor by accident. Huh. Um, How does that I've had an exit in 2004. Uh -huh. And when you get an exit from your business, you don't get all the money straight away. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, ours is a bit odd, but I won't go into details. But we, eventually, I got actually my final payment in the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, so uh, almost eight years, uh, basically after I uh, exited, <laughs> and um, and at the time I, I tell this story because it is true, but it's 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 also kind of slightly illustrative in a sense. Um, I remember getting that check, which is roughly about two hundred thousand pound left of my last check from that exit. I'd gone through all the rest. In, a, in different things, but also a very failed startup. And I was, at the time, with my partner going to buy a, thinking about buying a flat in London, in an area of London called the Haringey Ladder, which is in North London, because my partner had worked out 
but since 1991. But two bedroom flats in that area have doubled their price every four years. So you had a history of over 20 years of if you bought a two bedroom flat in four years time, you would have had doubled the price. Yeah. So why wouldn't it continue? Yeah. And, and, and it has actually. And, but at that time I was also working, start working in capital enterprise and I was just starting to see the emergence of the London tech scene. I was starting to see lots of tech businesses and although my first business was software, my second was consultancy, my third was hardware. I was getting back into those kind of wonderful times about thinking about startups and believing when I was a startup and, and getting that excitement back. So I remember telling her, I think I would be better off taking that money and being an angel and actually investing in some of the startups I see. Wow. The truth is, is I was a terrible angel. <laughs> I could go back to Wally. And we, me and my partner split up uh, about a year later. And if I had bought that house, that flat, I would have, that flat now, I think the last, she used to send me on Facebook every month, every quarter. Oh, that, that's nice what of her. the price of the flat was that we were both to get. And if that flat, the last time I looked, we were going to buy it for 240000 Last time I looked, it was £720,000. And of my investments I did with my just under £200,000, um, I made eight investments. I basically had one small exit, twice my money, but the six have died and I got one left. Uh, and no and flat. Because <laughs> the truth is about investment, it's about anything in life. Uh, basically, you can either get lucky, you can go to the plate and you can swing the bat and you can knock it out. And we all love those films, you know, the natural, who just, you know, all they had to needed was the opportunity, you know, so I just had to throw in the ball in the thing, came out of the crowd, hit it for, you know, kind of a home run and everyone applauded, you know, that, that, and we all have that beautiful idea that that's all it needs. It's just, the, yeah. you know, just the opportunity to get, to be in the plate, take the, take the swing, hit it for, for a home run. But in, the truth is, is most things like investment, it's about learning it's about basic experimentation and it's about basically getting a much more deeper understanding and much more experience before you become good at it and that that's my uh, that's my uh, kind of anecdote where a lot of things and the same about being an entrepreneur um sometimes it is about being the right place at the right time and in my business in 1998 we were in the right place at the right time uh, basically, um, and sometimes you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. When we were doing my hardware business, we were doing okay, and then the 2008 crash came, and we never recovered. And then we started to make some really bad decisions, but that's a different story. But a lot of it is about hard work. It's about perseverance. But mostly, it's about learning. It's about acquiring knowledge from basically experimentation, from experience, and eventually, hopefully, you, if you last long enough in it, you get good at it. Yeah, and that is something that I wanted to ask you because I know that when I reached out to a friend um, who actually has been on here, Charles Rad, uh, Radcliffe, he, he said, I said, hey, do you know John? He said, everyone in the London tech scene that had, it has anything to do with AI or ML knows John. 
So that was one one way that I realized. Let's try and get you on here. Let's try and see what you have oh, to say it's, because it's, of the it's experience. The same, same, same with that. It was an accident, to be honest. I could say so because my background. I I I'm I'm not. I didn't do computer science at university. I actually did philosophy. So anyway, and actually AI was one of the things I actually specialised in, in in as a theoretical subject matter in the uh, in the nineties in my in in UCL London University. And uh, kind of, um, and you know, I got interested in, in machine and AI, probably like a lot of people actually around 2014, 15, with the big breakthroughs that came yeah. actually two or three years before. I and mean, then the movement of basically using, particularly machine learning, as we, as, as almost synonymous, yep. deep learning uh, methods, methodologies. And what I ought to, at the time, I should have come back a step. In 2015, I was running another fund. And that fund was a generic fund, and it did again did seed. And we started to see companies come out of our universities, in particular in the UK, who were building machine learning, uh, basically uh, uh, startups. And they were being assessed on the same way, but a company that was ba- uh, was basically doing food delivery was being assessed. And we would basically try and pitch these companies basically to our co-investors. Our fund was a co-investment, London co-investment fund. And they would go, well, I don't really care what's under the hood. I don't really care about the technology. Just show me how quickly they can get to market and get traction. And the truth is, is that when it became apparent really in 2016 that we needed a new fund. And in 2016, we set up up AI Seed. Partly because we knew that that these investments are different from quick to market, quick to build, basically products where the real risk is market risk and not product and technology risk. Oh wow, how interesting! Now you've you're going through because uh, you have all of these investments that you're you basically you have under in your portfolio right now. At any given moment, how many deals are you evaluating? Well, I should say where I am now. I mean, one of the reasons I'm, I'm able to talk to you is, is actually um, both the funds I've ran since 2015, so that's five years, both of them are now what we call capped out. We have deployed our capital. So I'm in that kind of position now where we're what we call in the harvest period. We've made our investments. We advise our portfolios. We have no more money to follow on. We have little bits, but not much. And... My role now is to basically support them and try and raise another fund. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's interesting about the London scene in particular. Uh, I think I put out something at the beginning of this year that I am no longer investing. And I went from receiving something like 30 to 40 decks a week to now receiving four or five. <laughs> because as soon as people realize all he can offer is advice, he actually can't put money in. <laughs> he cannot, like, you know. Uh, and, and so it's slightly more reflective. And actually, the truth is, it's slightly out of kilter. We were and we are trying to raise another fund, but that's been particularly set back by COVID. And that's going to probably take an extra one or two years. And so at the moment, to keep my eye in the industry, to kind of show that I have, you know, still seeing good deal flow and to see where the trends are, I am an advisor and a, a, a based on a couple of other funds. Who, which basically means not a lot, really. I help them source deal flow and help them assess it, but really it's their funds. But I at least, uh, you know, would get invited to the uh, 
in a kind of um, you know to participate. Yeah, and when we were in COVID, invited to the pub a week once a week for a drink and a mm. natter. But really, I'm 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 not really um, investing on my own convictions at the moment. I'm advising a few others. I'm sitting on on lots of boards. I'm basically, but I'm not an active investor, um, which is strange for me because I've been active investing now uh, as an angel and running two funds since 2012. So it's the last four months is the last check I wrote was in March. So what's it now? June. Mm. Yep. So, but you know, and would, what would you say like as, as a rough guesstimate, how many deals have you seen over the years? Oh God. Um, oh God. If yeah. you had to uh, quantify it. Well, the peak when we ran the Linco Investment Fund, we saw, you see, um, VCs lie about this, by the way. They all think it's kind of, it's a real vanity metric. You get VCs and say, oh, yes, we see hundreds of deals. They don't. What, you know, what you're really saying is that have you basically seen the, received a deck, read the deck, and responded to basically the startup that sent it to you or the, um, or the introducer that sent it to you? And at my peak, I would have probably done 2,000 a year. Wow. Wow, yeah. I mean, last so, year we probably saw maybe three, four hundred, and we made um, 15 investments last year. Now, what stands out when you see these, when you're going through 2,000? Uh, what uh, is it that uh, you're looking uh, for? Well, actually, it's, it's not that hard to spot the good ones. I mean, despite what you say, um, yeah. because there's a hell of a lot of me too. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. I once, um, basically, this is in 2017, 18, when AI started to really hype. And AI, and everyone decided to put AI or machine learning in their deck. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I'm uh, basically a food delivery, but really I'm an AI food delivery. I'm a beer manufacturer, but I'm an AI beer manufacturer. I'm a co-working, but I yeah. have... Yeah, but, you know, so... Uh, and I remember going to an event, where there was five other VCs there, and basically, we all had to do a, a reverse pitch. You know, so what's about your VC? There's an audience, apparently, of just AI, AI startups, apparently being pre-vetted. It's about 100 there. It's in a big auditorium. And we had to do our pitch, and then we would basically have our desk to, you know, me and my colleague, and we'd wait for the startups to come up, sign up to us. And I, and I remember, uh, basically, I was the last one on, because my name's Spindler, so they did it by surnames, S. And, and they always said, oh, yes, we'd love blah, blah, blah. We want to see X and blah, blah, blah. This is all really exciting, et cetera. And I said, so I, was, I suppose our distinction as an AF fund is that we do technical DD. We will look under the hood and we will try and understand your technology and your vision and how you're able to kind of execute on that. And so we all stopped and then we all had to wait for the startups to come. And for three hours, we didn't get a single startup that came to our stand. <laughs> Because nobody no wanted one. you to look under the hood. Because they didn't have anything. And, 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 and I think actually that start, started to stop because it was actually very detrimental to startups who were AI to claim that they were. One of the big things you always, have been, always should know is, is you hear this a lot, a fake it till you make it. It's rare, but that will work. And generally, if you lie, you're out. If you say you're something and you're not, you're out. Um, yeah, I think I, I remember you telling me that it almost became too cliche when you would see someone that put AI in their name and it was almost like, ah, 
like not an instant you, you, disqualification. You, you, but, you, someone said recently that COVID is a new AI because that's what virtually all the decks people see now. People are trying to kind of put, you know, trying to squeeze in some COVID relevance to try and kind of think because oh, they want to. People think oh, I want to tell the investor what he wants to hear. Yeah. And it's a very good temptation in life, you know, tell the teacher what you basically, what they want to hear, tell your partner what they want to hear, kind of, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore they will then somehow grant you. And some investors are not very bright and sometimes they do that. So, you know, uh, but the, the key thing I, I think for, for, for most is that if you do, you say you're an AI company, there are three things that most investors have a problem with. First of all, Investors don't understand AI and machine learning. In the US, only 9% of the dollars go to deep tech, which is AI is a category within that. In the UK, I would say it's about 5%. The number one thing, especially angel investors, especially at seed, invest in is things they understand. So if you say, I'm an AI company, machine learning, blah, 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 you are basically uh, trying to, you know, most investors don't understand it and most people will not want to invest in something they don't understand. The second big thing is really important, especially for angels, business angels, people that put their own money in, is a lot of the time business angels put their money on, they're looking for social proof. They're looking for social acclaim. They're looking for basically their community of friends to say how bright you are and how smart you are. So if you are one of those individuals and you, you put money into an AI company, your friends are going to say, hi, John, what do you know about AI? And you go back to step one. You don't learn anything, and therefore you look like an idiot. <laughs> And then the super bright people who have basically see a machine and AI, the really the, the small minority, but basically will know the one big fact about machine and AI, which is often overlooked in all the press. It is bloody difficult. It is really hard to build out a model that will consistently consistently work. And most basic machine learning AI uh, projects are very disappointing in what they can achieve. Mm. It's pretty tough. And although you get lots of debates, as you all know, every day I see another thing, oh, basically a kind of a linear regression is better than deep learning. Well, anything, basically, it works. I mean, it's a toolkit. If you can get linear regression working, yes, it's simple, it's explainable. Fucking hell, it's a lot easier to do. <laughs> and if the problem, basically, is fit for a linear regression model, use a linear regression model. What the hell are you trying to do by building a kind of very complicated, basically, neural network? Yeah, it reminds me of um, the other day we had Dan Sullivan on here and he was saying how he spent all this time, you know, making sure the f-stops were perfect and just really tuning the model. And then later, once it got into the people's hands that were actually using it, they said, oh man, we can't do anything with this. And they don't care about how many f-stops you have, you know, they don't and, care. About and, and we've all got a real big problem. It's really hard to get it to work from the lab to the field. It's really, you know, you train it on toy data, you get real world data, real world data is really messy, your results dip, dis, dissipate. You know, it's, it's tough. And, and when people say to me all the time, machine learning will be a commodity, haven't you looked at GitHub or TensorFlow and seen all the models? I said, it's not, you know, all, but there's three things I would say about that. One is that you would almost say, I would say almost 100% certain that every one of those models have been overfit for the data they were built on. You know, two is that the trick is transfer learning. Transfer learning is incredibly difficult. 
Mm. It's, a, it's an experiment. There's very few, you know, and like all experiments, you get better more if you do them. So actually the human in the loop, the person that's trying to take the model and apply it, it has the, uh, and, and, if, and in most cases, even if you do that, it's still not good enough. You often have to go back to the fundamentals and build your own model, your own engine, your own data capture, basically kind of uh, uh, devices, uh, basic processes, et cetera. So can you walk us through maybe a few deals that you passed on and later they were successful? Well, I passed on quite a few. <laughs> um, basically, the biggest one I, I passed on, and I suppose was when in 2015, and I passed on a deal um, by a Russian guy called Nicholas and Freeman team. And they were building um, um, basically a, um, a kind of fintech product, which is now has a lot of, of, of machine learning in it. And that was a company called Revolut. Oh, and, yeah, and, I've heard of them. And, that, and at the time, the valuation was about four million pounds. I think now it's something like four point five billion. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty big. And 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 what it taught me is is that the the problem with uh, the fund I had is that we had to invest alongside basically some other named funds, um, and we had about ten of them, and. The, the two funds that basically we had to co-invest in, I couldn't invest on my own without them. We didn't have enough money and the rules were at such, but we had to have someone else to come in. Um, is that both of them passed because they said, um, come back to us when you have traction. And uh -huh. uh, basically, uh, Revolut had traction, but they hadn't monetized yet. So what they were effectively saying, come back when you can prove that your business model, how you make money, works. Wow. And, and that, uh, basically, you're, if anyone's tried to raise investment, you will often hear that. Take, you know, there are five big risks when you're making um, an investment. Every investor goes, looks at the same five risks. We all weight them differently. We all do slightly different things to assess them. And we obviously, on that weighting and that prioritization is, is virtually everything. And it's pretty simple, actually, how we do it, particularly at seed, prior to data, prior to business model data and and one of them increasingly at early stage which i think is often wrongly applied is the business model prove me that you can make money prove me that your basically your cost of acquisition and your lifetime value basic means that there's a company there that can generate cash flow that can fund future growth but then when they like for example revolut if they came back and they already had proven it out the investment is just astronomically much, much bigger, right? Because yeah. they've proven that they're a great company. Well, yeah, that's true. And, and, but there was a, you have to be braver. And there's a couple of things, I suppose we might get talking about what it's like to try and invest at seed. Mm -hmm. Because it's very different to invest, as you point out, when you're already scaling and there is basically your business model is proven, your tech is relatively proven. Your team is relatively proven. And most important of all, you've got presence in the market, so proving that the customers want it and keep on using it, keep on buying from it. 
When it's a different way, you can build a financial model, a business model yourself to assess it and predict where it will be in a year, two years, three years, four years' time, and therefore you can do the arbitrage. If I bought shares in the company today and it carries on doing this, the shares will be worth this, and there is the you know, a spread, that's mm-hmm. when I invest, et cetera, et cetera. But it's very much difficult when there is not that data. Yeah. You know, and we get a lot of people in machine learning and AI come to me and said, I will build you a prediction model for investing in, in basic companies. And I said, can you do that without data? And they said, no. I said, well, then go and see the Series B guys, you know, the guys at the big offices in yeah. Palo Alto and uh, <laughs> kind of, uh, Sandville and, uh, and Mayfair in London. You know, kind of, um, they're the ones that have the data because they invest when there is data. We invest without it. And so we have to basically, you know, we have models, we have ways of obsessing it, but they're not basically, they're quite subjective. And so when you're looking at these different seed investments, if you don't have the data, what is it that you base your investments on? We do the same criteria. We look at five things. So I'm actually telling you, and you look at the, the, the five risks. So you're assessing risk and reward. It's as simple as anything. If you think about that, it's a risk and a reward. And, a re- and in the end, obviously, the reward, you fit the reward you will get has to be worth the risk you're about to take. And so the risks you look at are execution risk. Do you believe the team can do what they say they can do? Do you believe they're credible? Do you think they're capable? Do they have some advantages which are you know, hard to replicate? You know, do they have an executional plan which you're confident they can actually put into basic practice and you, you know, do this kind of, by going to the pub with them or by well, some of it is quite simple you say okay what are the challenges and tasks of building this out let's look at you can you do them well give me some evidence that you can do that have you built one of these models before no okay <laughs> do you know any customers no okay can it you know it said have you worked together before no i've just met him <laughs> You know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You know, kind of, um, you know, so there's, there's that, there's that, the execution risk. There is the market risk. Is there really a problem to solve? Is there really a group of customers that presently in the market have a need but can't be sated, can't be addressed? And can you address that better than the competitors, the substitute products themselves, doing themselves? And do you have a way and a method to get to them and convince them to do so? You know, so are they customers? Are they really customers? Are they really, really customers they're dying to uh, get them? And then you have uh, the product tech risk, which is in, in machine learning often the big one, which is can they build it? Can they build it? And can they build it so it's, it's best in class? Hmm. You know, can they build it so it gives a, a, a fundamental performance gain beyond basically straight rules-based software? Hmm. Yeah, that's an then, important one. And then the fourth one is the business model. Can you make money from it? Can it make money at scale? Is there a kind of business model, at least in theory, that says how you can make money? And then the fifth risk is my risk as an investor. How do I make money by investing in you? And that will be about how I source my money, what my expectation is, what my risk assessment is, risk tolerance is, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, so um, a pitch book, I think, I think it's 2017 now, uh, did a, looked at the, um, a 10-year cycle since the crash in Europe, 
maybe 2018 then, um, basically on what the returns was if you were an investor investing in, in tech startups. And they found, I think the figures were 6% return on capital if you invested at seed. So every time you invested in the seed, you had a 6% chance of getting your money back. Uh, it was 18% at Series A and 40% at Series B. And since that came, there's been a massive pile here, the States, China, everywhere, to try and invest in the ones that look like the proven winners mm. and invest big. So yeah. about 95% of all the VC money is later than A, it's B, C, D, E. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I actually just saw an article about that, how and there, Series B and, is still going strong. And the reason is, is because basically... Uh, investors are not investing for you to solve the problem. They're not investing in you to kind of build a team. They're not investing. They're investing in you to dominate a market, to become one of the players, become a monopoly player if you can. You know, and and that can only really be assessed once you've done your first scale. Hmm. And so that's the kind of data they're looking for. And so kind of so those are five risks, and there's actually five steps. So uh, this is seen, I seem to be stuck on number five, uh, kind, of, kind of like, uh, which is in startups, you go from idea, so you've had an idea in the pub. Mm-hmm. The next step is commitment. You do something about it. You start building something. You start telling your friends, you start putting a team together. It's, it goes from an idea to something. You go, the next step there is first signal. You get some signal in the market or in the technology, et cetera. It says this can work. Customers love it. Yeah, and then you go from first signal to basically what we say is is data product market fit. The first time we have some data that suggests the product works, the customers love it, and you can make money at scale. And the next kind of tip is: can you scale? Hmm. Can you actually take a company and start to scale and dominate a market? Mm-hmm. And there's the five steps, and most investors invest in transitions from one step to another. To move you from, say, commitment to first signal or first signal to data or data to first or second scale. Uh huh. And so you said before that there's lots of you. You get thousands of pitch books, but it's pretty clear which ones are the good ones. What is it that makes them stand out? What makes the good ones okay obvious? Um, and, and and every investor has a thesis. We all I say we all there, but we all have we all emphasize. And when I was doing, when we were running AIC, we, were, we made our thesis that actually the winners will be the people who can build the best technology or, or can, can actually solve the problem. And we particularly invested actually quite a lot in regulatory industries where you have to prove that before you're allowed to trade, like finance or health. Um, um, that might be wrong. And <laughs> actually we'll find out in two years' time if that was the wrong thesis. But we emphasised above anything else, the product tech, tech risk. So everyone we invested in, in the end, we, we invested in 50 companies of which uh, three are dead. One's exiting tomorrow, actually, our first exit. And, uh, you know, we started off in 2017. Congratulations. Um, um, and 46 are still there. Uh, kind of like, and, um, and, and most of those, we see the initial challenge in a deep tech startup is that can they challenge? Can they solve the engineering problem? Hmm. Can they make a machine learning product work better than a rules based? If not, why bother? Mm-hmm. Can, you know, and 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 what, only when you can do that 
can you basically start to scale up in terms of the getting customers and scaling the customers? Because most initial customers for machine learning products are co-creators, co-collaborators. You are selling something which isn't really fit for purpose. And you're hoping to basically work with their data and with their patients to prove that you can get something which is much better than they can do themselves or better on the market, et cetera, et cetera. And that takes trust and that takes time. And so it's whatever people think, and this is very different from say when I invested in simple SaaS, basically companies using rules based, it would, you know, if it worked on day one, it would work on, you know, day 30. I mean, all you did was bug fix, which are obviously a lot of, yeah. and you concentrate a lot on the friction points about how, of adoption, hmm. how to make it simpler, easier to use, easier to understand, blah, blah, blah. You have to do all of that in machine learning, but you also have to fundamentally make sure that your model works. If it's analytical or, or predictive or prescriptive or, or, or tries to automate, it must achieve one of those. Otherwise, it's a very costly product for the customer. You bought a car without an engine. Or, or you know, and actually when we were in the States, when I went to the States in 2017, the, the, the model in the States, which I, I used to invest in as well, and et cetera, came very much in the what happened in the mid-noughties when we had a lot of people looked at the failure of the dot-com boom and looked at some of the kind of reasons why that happened and looked at the type of startups that we, in future you have to do and came up with techniques such as lean startup, agile, think, agile thinking, design thinking, business model canvas, all, all these techniques that came on there to kind of try – and effectively run a system so you basically kind of support the startup to overcome the, um, the initial barriers so they can get to a situation where um, you can say that this company is now able to scale. Mm -hmm. and, and the truth is most of those risks were market risk. Now, will the customer, will it, does it, does it, will it solve the problem for the customer and will customers love it? Will customers use it? Yeah, and if right. anyone's ever been through a lean startup process, it's very much around customer development, uh -huh. you know, and, and all of that. And I'm and I think in in machine learning, you have to do that as well. You have to do that as much as anything else. But you also have this second thing: is can you build it? Can you actually kind of basically kind of do that? Because the the truth is is that there are we've invested in two types of machine learning company. Uh -huh. We have, we try to do invest. I think of probably of our 50, probably four or five, but I try to tackle really deep problems in machine learning hmm. on annotation of data, on basic deployment of models, on the infrastructure, on basically trying to be best in class in facial recognition or something there where there is normally a, actually a, um, a data set you can judge basically the quality of the model on, which is publicly available. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to say, we're back in the, we think we got the best team out of Imperial or KTH in Sweden or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to back them and they're going to basically, on my, our money, carry on doing research, but do it against a specific thing, but a challenge where we think if you can unlock that, people will want your talent, will want your team, want your technology, want your IP, and you can get an exit. Hmm. So we've done maybe four or five of those. But for most companies we've invested in, we've invested in really early, for them to basically go from a tadpole into a frog. And what I mean by that is initially, 
their technology is not fit for purpose. They have to spend the first year, two years, sometimes even longer to try and take their technology. But once they have a technology that basically works, a prediction model that works, a time series data model that is best in, in class, and they have clients and they can prove that this works, they have to productize that and then become like any other tech startup focused on capturing market share. Mm-hmm. So when they're a tadpole, they have to swim and eat and basically build, et cetera, et cetera. But as soon as they actually got that stage, they had to then metamorphose into that frog and basically have all the kind of uh, characteristics of a frog to take that market. And what have you seen companies do well as far as that transition goes? Is that something that, because I imagine it's going from having a strong engineering team with a very small sales team to then expanding the sales team or is it bringing on some developer relations people yeah it's both it's it's both it's 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 definitely the, the case and we've got our teams now going for for that because when i was investing in SaaS plays th- that process of iteration agile thinking building your product testing it sending it out getting feedback spending a hell of a lot on the UX, adapting, blah, blah, blah. Normally that you have a good team, you'd find out that would be the first year, maybe up to two years. And probably you've got a machine learning, they're still doing it three years later. And that's something that you had mentioned last time we talked is the expense of investing in these machine learning startups and how expensive it is just to make sure that the product gets out there it's, it's especially out there it's expensive to build and also like we have a lot of compute power issues you know you you know a lot of your guys will find it's easy to get very early stage free credits and you know azure aws google etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but once you start to scale it they would go incredibly expensive yeah i mean i have a startup at the moment and the other investors today on the board meeting i was at was saying well, why can't you reduce the latency down to a matter of you know nanoseconds? Because the cost on, on the GPUs, the cost of compute to get it down there is much more than the client's prepared to pay. Yeah. You know, and so you have these kind of, you know, but they're not used to that. They're your use of saying, it's a piece of software, it's in the cloud, what, who cares? Because uh-huh. it's not trying to do enormous, complicated compute at speed. Hmm. Well, you don't, you know, if you do parallel process and all the rest, it's still going to be expensive. Yeah. And do you feel that's, that's what I've seen some startups that try to attack that, uh, that very cause that they're building hardware for the machine learning and data science space because of that. But it's very true that when you're first trying to prove out this model, it's like, uh, the three cloud players, they, the first First one's free, and then you're, once you're hooked, you're and in. That's expensive. I mean, people people look at great companies. We have some great companies in the UK. We have you know that have merged out of here, um, and obviously mostly been bought by the big tech companies. I mean, famously probably DeepMind out of UCL um, got bought um, basically re- you know in its very early stages. We've got two or three years after by Google, and now you have over twelve hundred basic researchers and. You know, in King's Cross next to UCL's campus, basically uh, kind of uh, working for DeepMind, possibly the number one research, AI research private sector institution in the world. And you could debate whether some is better is better than some public ones like Stanford. 
or Carnegie Mellon. Um, but the issue um, uh, uh, for uh, Vamin, and when they do really expensive um, basic reinforcement learning models with, with, with all of Google's basic enormous kind of, uh, kind of compute power, and you try and then apply them to the same models in an early stage startup, which you just don't get anywhere near. Yeah, it's impossible to recreate. And especially on your own, if you're not, if you're not coming with that kind of horsepower, you can't do much. I mean, so, we've, invent, we've invested recently in, in, in quantum computing software companies, about three of them, four of them. And, and most of them are building in, in simulation-based environments using machine learning. Mm. And ironically, they're doing that because to get onto the basically, you know, the dream waves and the kind of gate systems and the iron systems, et cetera, et cetera, is so difficult. And, so, and there isn't many of them, and they're, and they're so difficult to work on. It's easier to build your models in a simulated quantum environment than actually the real quantum environment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they look at the compute problems in machine learning as, as a simpler kind of option. So there's always someone worse off than you and, and on, on this. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So now can you just, can you talk to us about things that you're a bit bullish on since COVID hit? I mean, COVID's difficult across the board. And actually, um, even in the areas you think that basically um, it should give it, and it will give a good, possibly give a good area um, a longer term boost because it's. I think what COVID is instead was a great, good Adresen article I think about two months ago, saying that basically innovation people aren't crying out for innovation. Generally, when you show innovation to people, their their response is defensive. You know, you threaten the inf uh, infrastructures, institutions, their own jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the great thing about what's happened in COVID is that in certain areas, like cloud compute, like telemedicine, it has forced institutions and people who had previously said, over my dead body, to have to overnight go all cloud. Or basically, um, you know, doctors in particular, doctors have been very, very anti-telemedicine uh, or remote diagnostics. Now, it's all they can use. So that's kind of... Uh, and it turns out not to be as bad as they thought. Yeah. You know, so, um, so, but even those, it's been difficult. It's, it's not a, a perfect game. It's about timing. Was your product ready just when it happened? Imagine COVID would happened 18 months ago. Imagine we now all were doing this on Skype. <laughs> you know, and then Zoom wasn't really known or basically it was, didn't have the infrastructure, didn't have the backing. Yeah, the adoption wasn't yeah, there. That, you know, could only basically serve half a million people because that's all it's kind of got. Uh, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, imagine trying to do this on Skype, for God's sake. So a lot of it is timing. Um, going forward, I don't know. I mean, I'm on, next week we have in London, um, um, basically, um, Cognition X, which is the big AI event. And I'm on, I think I'm on three panels trying to, you know, future gaze of what's going to happen. And, and, I don't know. I, I go from, uh, I, like, like yourself, one of the big issues you probably have in AI here is how do you model this black swan? It's out of the parameters. You know, and never mind whether you feel there will be a second wave, which I think there probably will be, mm. and the implications of that. Um, yeah. You know, kind of, uh, 
Uh, never mind where, uh, do you think there'll be a vaccine? I, I think not, because I don't think we've put as many vaccines ideas into, into development as we should. It's a stochastic method and requiring you to one to 3% chance of any vaccine working. So generally, just like seed investment, you've got to spread your money to around lots and lots. And that's a, it's a good example, actually. You could ask why. I mean, in the UK, for instance, we had about 10 vaccine programs and we backed two. Wow. And the reason is, a little bit, is I think it's the perception of failure. If you back a vaccine, it doesn't work. Basically, you look bad. The politician looks bad. The institution looks bad. Investors look bad, but it's an experiment, and experiments fail. That's the reason they're experiments, hmm. and and therefore, you know, it's you know, kind of like they, you know, they backed one at Oxford, they backed one at Imperial, they didn't back one at Cambridge. There's another one at Imperial. There's another one at Oxford. There's one at UCL. There's one in Belfast. One in Glasgow. There's lots. Never mind the ones that were basically exactly happened in in places like France, Canada, Germany. America, exactly the same. Not all of them got funded. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And talking about this idea of failure, how do you look at that? Because I know you've gone through your fair share of ups and downs, as you mentioned. The truth is, is, is that if I've got only a 6% chance of returning capital, then I can't, and I'm investing at a stage because it's 6% because there's not much data. I reckon I can add probably double that. I'm confident about with my, my knowledge and my pattern recognition and the good source and et cetera. I can probably say I'm getting that to 12%. But there's probably not a lot of things you do in your life where you have an 88% chance of failing. <laughs> so how do I do that? I do it by spreading. You know, if I was a Series B fund, I would probably make three or four investments a year. I probably see not too less than I see, maybe maybe half the number, but fair, you know. But as a as a pre-seed to seed investors, I have to make at least a dozen investments a year hmm. to give myself a chance that. But if one makes it, they can afford they can make enough money to to afford all the others not. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And is there any? Deals that you've seen that you were convinced were going to be successes and they just never went anywhere? I had a deal. I've I, I got another one at the moment. And actually, it's really interesting. In machine learning, one of the real problems is mass annotation. You know, how do you take unstructured data and structure it and categorize it correctly before you can apply your... And I've uh, basically, I've, uh, since we've done this, since four years, we've had people with great credentials coming up and saying, we have a mass annotation kind of system that can annotate raw data and turn it into things that can be put into nice columns that you can then do your time series data model on or whatever. And I'm sucker for those. And we had a great team once came out, I won't say the university, came out of a university and a company called Palantir. And they came to us, and we were lucky to see them because and we got talking to them. We got quite friendly, went down to the pub. But they already had, when we met them, some well-known investors, big VCs in the European scene, mm-hmm. already offering them term sheets and money. <laughs> so it was almost like a politeness. We're going to see you, John. We don't need your money. You haven't got enough to give <laughs> us anyway. And, 
And I remember basically, we were the only people that kept going back to them and said, how are you going to try and do this? Uh. You know, kind of, you know, how are you going to do this? And they said, well, we're going to try and do this. And this was, oh, that can't work because of X. And that can't work because of Y. And et cetera. And we kept kind of, and, and in the end, I've got to say to this team, I can't name them because they're quite well-known people. They decided not to go ahead. And they gave the money back. They, it was serious amounts of money. They, they, they had to sign term sheets. I don't know if the money went from their, into their bank account, but they cancelled the term sheet and gave the money back because in the end, they worked out, well, actually, this is such a difficult problem. They're not quite sure how to do it. Oh, wow. And I think we're still, there are still big uh, problems in machine learning around, it, around taking data, taking raw data and structuring it. Mm-hmm are still there because otherwise it becomes incredibly labor intensive and using mechanical to annotate you don't get much yeah yeah it's so interesting that you talk about this because yesterday we were talking with robert monroe and he's a very big proponent for this human in the loop and we went real deep into the human in the loop and how to create a culture around that how to why you should be using it and what it is that uh, what it is, first of all, you know, this active learning and, and all of that. And it, it was really interesting, his view on it. I asked him, well, do you think that this will ever change? Will we ever be able to get past this and not need the human in the loop? And he said that his, in his opinion, it's not going to. And he didn't want it to either because there's a lot of things that he would like to have a human opinion on. So I think there's something on there, and this this is a danger for for machine learning. I think I agree with him, but it's it, it it's where in basically the chain in the where the human comes in, and how much. The danger of all machine learning, uh, basically, is they become bespoke projects. They become research projects to look at a unique data set with unique tools and build a one-off solution for a one-off moment in time for a, a single company. And, and you could say for every one machine learning company, you probably got about five consultancies out there at the moment saying, I, am, I will build you one. Yeah. And the truth is, as I keep saying to them, that they're buggers to, to basically build, but they're even worse to maintain. Mm. It's feral software. It is software that goes wild. <laughs> Yeah, which is so, kind of like you know, so a lot of people don't want that. They want because we've got to a stage in society where where we use software. I use software all the time, lots and lots of tools, without really knowing what's under the hood and, and expecting it to work perfectly every time. Mm-hmm. I'm not having to basically kind of pull out my metaphorical spanner and open up the bonnet and and basically work out what went wrong. Mm-hmm. But that you know that's. I don't think we'll never get to stage in machine learning where we're going to be able to have that. And neither should we, we're, that we're trying to, in many ways, make them intelligent. And just like humans, they will make mistakes. Mm-hmm. The truth yeah. is, if, whether the payoff is worth it. That is the, uh, of all the things that we look in machine learning, we do, we, 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 we got a, um, a system is the best, is a, is a nice way to describe it, it's not. We have a very real ru- ru- heuristic about assessing um, basically, um, machine learning propositions. We stole it from basically um, kind of a guy called Matt Turk, who's a famous VC in New York. Mm-hmm. He published something around 2016. We thought that's good. We'll Let's use, use that, build our own version around it. So, uh, kind of 
I have met him once. I didn't tell him I stole your system, but I had. Uh, can I say? I don't know if this is publicised. It'll come back. But he has a, a five things. It's all alliteration. It's, uh, it's called the five Ps. Uh-huh. You know, so you look at if I, if, uh, so the first one is the people. You know, do they have the skills, the expertise, the background, credibility, experience of building basic models? Mm. And we, you know, we and, and in many ways that's probably the most important. And then you uh, basically look at the next uh, kind of uh, P, which is the product. And the key thing I want to make about the product is, does it create value for your end customer? How does it create value for them? What does it do that they can't do now through a rules-based system? And actually, we get a lot of, uh, of machine learning companies end up simplifying. And actually, real, fine, actually, they may have started off to want a very complex, say, deep learning model but are actually using simple symbolics yeah. in, 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 you know, to basically achieve the same thing because it's easy, it's quicker, and, it's, and actually it doesn't, you know, it's not worth the cost and the complexity to try and basically kind of, uh, uh, kind of go for a, um, a deep neural network model on that. So the product, it's all about the value it creates for the customer and whether that's worth it. Because you are taking a big risk by doing this, and sometimes it may be not worth it. We then look at the um, process. So what machine learning models are you trying to build? What, what, and most people use a, uh, a basic compendium of different, from, you know, across the base, and they have to be fit for purpose. Mm. I mean, are you categorizing? Are you clustering? Are you basically, you know, kind of predicting, et cetera, et cetera? Um, then we look at the petabytes because we like alliteration. So that's the data and the source of the data and what type of data and is a first order or a second order data company, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. And then we look at finally the positioning. Um, as an investor, I try and avoid ever going head to head with Amazon, Google, uh-huh. kind of 10 cents if I do. And I'm looking for kind of models and where places where people don't wake up in mountain view and say, I really want to build a computer vision model that solves this problem in this industry. Yeah, that's probably for the better. That's who was it that told me the other day, they said, yeah, you're, you're fine until Amazon enters into your market and then it's game over. Well, sometimes you're right. Although sometimes basically Amazon will then find how difficult it is as well. And, but I mean, some markets are never going to be massive, and my fund's quite small. So we can have a company that can basically and potentially dominate an industry, where the industry itself might be relatively small or might be big, look big, but actually in terms of what they spend on basically, um, you know, prediction, prescription, automation is pretty small. Hmm. Yeah. So, we, for instance, we've invested in a, in a couple of companies doing computer vision in agriculture. So we've done a company called Observe, but basically does computer vision in very murky water in Norway, in Scotland, and Chile to basically count, count, count and predict the weight of fish, many salmon or trout. And that allows basically those fish farms to uh, basically optimize on their kind of feed and, then, and, the, and the basically, um, you know, and the health products that they give them. So when they and came, that's the kind of business I don't think someone in Mountain View is going to kind of do, and it's a really quite a difficult computer vision problem because fish yeah. move around, the quality of the basic light's pretty poor, mm-hmm. you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Kind of um, there's an inductive uh, basic problem there as well. 
because obviously you're trying to do a measurement as well as basically a categorization issue. So, so it's a, so it's a good technical problem. It's not something they can, the industry is going to solve itself. Mm-hmm. But it's That's also, yeah, but it's pretty niche. And I, I, I don't expect that company to end up basically being a billion dollar company. Mm. But I do expect it to be quite a good company. Yeah. And when they came, when the guys or girls from Observe came to you, did they already have that model built out and it was working and they showed you, hey, this is they, it? They had a basic model. Um, you're quite right. They had a toy model based on some toy data. What they were actually is two guys from a university called Imperial who uh, were really pretty hot on computer vision. And they wanted to find a problem that was hard. And someone suggested, have you ever tried to count fish in, mur- in murky water? Uh, that's amazing. And now uh, Rishi, who runs that business, you know, is, uh, you know, is, is urban as I am. Basically, now basically is often in, in wellies in the middle of, of basically fjords in Norway or in Chile or in lakes in Canada. Wow. Kind of speaking to these people that run these enormous fish farms. And making sure that his models are proven value for him. Yeah, it was nicely, and and you know, kind of, um, um, you know, and it's a, and it's also a, um, um, an interesting thing because he's got a data source. They already, you know, they already basically have cameras on the kind of fish to make sure oh. they, you know, they'll get predators in and things like that. Oh, okay. So it's not like where you have you mentioned earlier where you sometimes the only way you just know data you're going to have to build the entire hardware to capture the data before you can actually apply any models. Yeah, here it's it's something that they already have. And we've got, we've got I've just invested about four or five months ago in another company called Flox, uh, by another uh, uh, a British guy called Imitias, and that's uh, effectively um, counting and 